I've not only enjoyed the joy of service and community, but having this pick one problem and just work away at it. Because I know that, I mean, many people that I come into a counter with, like get really paralyzed by the size of problems in the world, by the size of things that need to change. And it's crushing when you can't carve out like, what piece is mine? What am I here to do? And what is in front of me that I can make a difference on? And as you continue to work in your sphere of influence, your sphere increases rather than just kind of losing energy to where you actually aren't even making a difference. Warm welcome to Intersections. Our aspiration in this podcast is to help all of us explore what are our fullest capacities, individually and collectively, to be able to live meaningful lives and do our life's most beautiful work. We have today in our midst somebody who exemplifies this quality of doing her life's most beautiful work and expanding herself to her fullest capacities are so wonderfully, so especially, Ellen Agler. A renowned changemaker, public health leader, she's worked in global health and humanitarian response for over 25 years in more than 70 countries. Organizations she's worked for include Operation Smile and the International Medical Corps. She's been named at one of Fortune magazine's World 50 Greatest Leaders. Recently, she is today the CEO of the End Fund. This is a philanthropic initiative set up to control and eliminate the five most commonly neglected tropical diseases in the world that affect over 1.5 billion people. Ellen serves, amongst others, on the board of the World Economic Forum's Global Health Security Advisory and is the co-author of the book, Under the Big Tree, Extraordinary Stories from the Movements to End Neglected Tropical Diseases. Educational life, she has a degree in international health from the Harvard School of Public Health and in development studies from the London School of Economics. She's also completed a study in conflict resolution from the University de Javanirayan. Uh, I'm going to mess that up. I'm going to ask Ellen to come and pronounce that for me. It's in Spanish, uh, in Bogota, Colombia. Ellen, what a joy and what an honor to have you in our midst. Thank you for joining us today. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for such a kind introduction. Oh, my joy. And, and um, before I move forward, help me correct my, you know, great sort of uh, mess up with that, with that pronunciation of the University in Bogota, given my lack of knowledge about all things Spanish. It's yeah. Universidad de la Javeriana. Yeah, I had the great opportunity to live in Bogota for a couple of years. I can't, it's been, it's been over 20 years now. So I was there from 1999 through 2001. Actually, that's where I was when 9-11 happened. And took courses on conflict resolution. It was a certificate program that was a pretty small group, but it was attended by someone who was the chief of police, someone who was a former member of M19 guerrilla group, someone who was working on the peace commission. It was just a phenomenally interesting, very active group. And one of my biggest excuses for taking that course was everyone was trying to practice their Spanish with me when I was trying to learn Spanish. And I figured if I did an academic course where everyone had to speak Spanish, it was a remarkable experience. But thank you. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. And, you know, it's a glimpse into your very adventuresome spirit. 
have you over the course of your life then in so many different parts of the world ended up sort of uh, learning learning other languages as well is that one of your passions unfortunately like many americans i think i didn't take learning languages very seriously growing up I took a little french i took a little spanish but it wasn't until i started working in international health that i thought oh this would be incredibly useful to actually go deeper and have another language but um, and maybe a little portuguese from my thing and working in the region. But otherwise, yeah, it's something I wish I was invested in more. It's like so beautiful. And it's, I you even feel like, you must feel this. There's like a different part of yourself that you tap into when you speak a different language. Like there are things that I feel more comfortable saying in Spanish or seem cheesy to say in English, but seem beautiful to say in Spanish. Or there's just like a, a soul to a language that opens up a new part of yourself as well as helps you connect with the culture and people in a completely different way. What languages do you speak, Chandra? I'm not that super literate, you know, from a language standpoint. So Hindi, which is my native language, a little smattering of Punjabi, which is kind of like a sister language, not not too disparate from Hindi, and then English. And I have a lot of reg regrets. You know, I, I'd love to have known Sanskrit, another of like ancient India's languages, the classical language from India the language of India's religious scriptures. I would have loved to know Urdu, which is this fusion of like Persian and Hindi that got manifested under Mughal rule in India. And that has been often the language of some of like the arts, you know, in Northern India and the um, in the Mughal periods of the last several hundred years prior to British rule. And and then of course, some of these yeah, international languages as well, I would have loved to. My daughter has quite a, quite a gift for languages, but um, somehow that passed me by. <laughs> I don't know, speaking three languages is pretty good. <laughs> Well, I, I agree with you that knowing at least two, I think, can have a very liberating Im impact on one's own psyche, right? Because you're able to step back then from a culture and a way of being to another culture, another way of being. And that allows you to have more capacity to be able to have perspective on, on each of those cultures and therefore make more choices about what you're going to do in your I guess, ways of thinking, right? I mean, so that value I definitely see in my switching back and forth between Hindi and English. And what do you find about yourself is able to be expressed differently in Hindi versus English? I grew up with a deep draw towards, you know, the pursuit of enlightenment, devotional connection to the creative spirit. And there are these things called bhajans, you know, these uh, chants, this devotional music that made a deep, deep, deep imprint on me in in those early years. There is, uh, at times, a celebration that happens, you know, at times where you're meant to, like, stay up the whole night, just uh, getting together with the harmonium, this, uh, you know, musical instrument. I love the harmonium. Oh, yeah. Okay, lovely. <laughs> yeah. And then somebody chants, and then somebody else chants, and then everybody joins as a group, and and you just keep going with that devotional, devotional order. I was just revisiting George Harrison's... Um, song my sweet lord you're familiar with that one ellen you know i'll have to look that one up i haven't actually listened to his music from that period i love listening to like krishna das's well chanting and jai utal and some of the americans who picked up that devotional call and response okay i'll send you a reference to this one it's it's a really beautiful way of a westerner coming in and tuning into that sensibility and then bringing it into a form that could permeate popular consciousness in, in America and, and, and beyond. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful expression of that same sort of... So yes, when I'm doing chanting in Hindi, it has a certain very special impact as one, one example. I mean, is it called Kirtan in the Indian yes, context yeah, as well? Yeah, um, yeah, Kirtan. But it's just another way of singing 
about love of God and all of the different manifestations. And what is it? Bhakti yoga is, is like one of the forms of yoga that is just about how to express love and love of other, love of the divine. And so thinking about those kirtan songs, I always think of them as love songs. And they really do when you're in a group of people singing and chanting the divine, it just can be really elevating and inspiring and just kind of transcendent in a way that you think about maybe like, uh, you know, Rumi and the whirling dervishes did dancing and this, this particular tradition of singing, like it just elevates your sense of being and also a sing singing in community as an amazing way of just connecting you with everybody else in the room. You may not know them you might even know their name, but you're connected through this vibration of your voice. Yeah, so true, so true. Everything you say has such deep resonance for me. I'm flashing back to the time that we were in Istanbul and old Istanbul and, you know, very keen to experience a little bit of the whirling dervishes and go up there. And uh, we were a little cautioned because we had like a small child with us, you know, our daughter was, you know, a little baby at that time. And uh, we were fearful that, you know, what if she breaks into a cry or something and is impatient and all of that in the middle of this very devout kind of like sacred moment. And so the Islamic orchestra starts and these whirling dervishes are, are doing their very mystic um, twirling. And, and uh, it was incredible. You know, it went on for about an hour and a half and she was just so captivated herself. There's something in just that energy right there, which um, transported her soul, I think, to the same place it did ours. And so I want to invite you, if you don't mind, like go back to the very early days. I'm curious about sort of what got you started in pursuing, you know, social social impact causes. And, and even prior to that, I know that you were pursuing journalism, you know, for a while and, and how even that got started, like at a really young age. So, you know, if you go back to the time you were like 14 or so, and yeah, there's, there's like a very remarkable glimpse that we get into fierceness of like independence in you, <laughs> you know, that from a very early age was kind of charting her own path. You know, could you talk a little bit about, about sort of those early days when you were like flying out of the nest? Well, it's interesting because you talk about moments when you were 10 years old of feeling connected to the beginnings of your spiritual journey. I mean, I grew up, my dad was in the Air Force and so we, and we moved around a lot. I think that had a lot of influence on the course of my life in terms of being around a lot of different cultures, a lot of different types of people, different communities, and learning to be an observer, to recognize that like just needing to figure out what the new dynamics were of where I was meant stepping back, being the observer, trying to assess the lay of land, and, and recognizing that things that were deeply held by a community one place weren't even considered in another place. and. So it made it just confusing to me often when people just like were so strongly held to certain beliefs that they thought were universal when actually I think it led me on a quest of what is universal and what does connect people. And even I might have mentioned to you, like my, I grew up, my father is Republican, my mom is Democrat, like some a relationship that hardly even happens anymore, but like really having so much love and respect for each other. Yeah, I loved writing. I remember when I was really young, I used to have slumber parties that were all about like bring your novel in progress and we'll all work on it. And I just loved, yeah, the art of observation. I, when I moved, we moved at one point from the Washington DC area when I was about 14 to Mountain Home, Idaho, which was a town of 15,000 people, pretty remote. And it was like, probably it's funny because I lived, you know, lived in many countries and 
cultures, but somehow that within the US experienced the greatest culture shock <laughs> that I ever have. And it was, yeah, I think at the time I wanted to like be a, I wanted to write more. I looked, they didn't have a school newspaper and I got connected to the local newspaper there. And they were like, well, why don't you just come and work for us? Why don't you come and have an internship here? And just fell in love with that opportunity. It was like, I have this uh, free pass to go ask people questions and dig into finding out what's behind things and write things that were relevant to people in the community. And that was a whole range of things that I got to do um, in that first journalism role. And then when I decided, like, actually, I, I really wanted to move out of that small town into the capital of Idaho is Boise, Idaho. I presented a whole proposal to my parents written out and costed and where I'm going to live and where I'm going to go to school. And, and, and I had already lined myself up with uh, speaking to the largest paper, USA Today, Gannett paper. And they offered for me to come and do some articles there and work as a copy editor. So yeah, that was the probably flying from the nest at 16, I moved out or to pursue my career as a journalist. Fast forward a few years, I had an editor who was saying, you're getting way too attached to the stories that you're doing. Because I would do all these stories on, you know, at the time it was Bosnian refugees that were resettling in Idaho, or the Idaho Commission for the Blind was having financial troubles, or there's many different things that I would end up volunteering for that community or that refugee center or to read books to the blind. Because he said, maybe you're in the wrong profession and you should, you know, instead of writing stories, you should follow them and become part of the change. And and that's a little oversimplistic in terms of my thought process about the time, but it was a pivotal conversation for me. And in looking at, okay, when I graduate with my degree, I, I would love to look for going into the Peace Corps or Foreign Service at the time I looked at. And that's when I got connected to Operation Smile. And that was my first foray into global health. And I fell in love with that work. It was so transformational, so clear the impact, such an incredible family who founded the organization. And just to see the power of what individual family could grow what a, what a single idea like it was just being that close to um, the founders also and seeing that energy and momentum yeah really just didn't turn back from that point and knew that was the career that i wanted to stay in so this moment where you sort of walk away from a first love which was like writing creative writing and reporting into into being part of the story and shaping the story was that a fairly sort of emotionally like just a simple step or was there some struggle at all in in giving up something that you'd you know had a lot of fondness for you know this this dream of seeing yourself in writing mode and enjoying the process of writing and now now seeing that to be less and less a part of you know your your daily work i think there was a couple things one i took a class my freshman year of college with robert thurman at columbia on indo-tibetan buddhism it was pretty profound to me the scope of that world view and the depth of the teachings and in something called the Eightfold Path in Buddhism is one of the eight pieces is a right livelihood. And how do you live a life that is aligned with your highest values? And I just think I started thinking actually a life in service of others in a more direct way. I think journalism can feel sometimes quite indirect. Matter of fact, it's interesting because one of the, the founders of the End Fund, the original funders, read an article in the Financial Times where they learned about neglected tropical diseases. And we've you know, we stayed in touch with that journalist and he's like, it's the one, it's like one of the one stories I know that somebody read, somebody acted on and amazing things happened because of like, they definitely wouldn't have gotten into neglected tropical diseases if that wasn't for that one article. 
and picking up the phone and calling the people who were quoted in that article. And now, you know, we've treated hundreds of millions of people later. Yeah, I, I think between that course and then, I mean, to be completely honest, I've always been like a highly sensitive person. And that has manifested in different ways in terms of emotionally, yeah, just struggling sometimes. And I think that honestly, the pursuit of writing, especially in that like late teens, early 20s, was really painful. There's like you or you finding your voice, you finding like, what do you have to write about when you don't even have all this life experience? That's why I liked journalism. So like, okay, very clear what I was, but like the idea of the time wanting to write, you know, be a novelist or something. And I, I just like the discipline that it was required and the, all of the, the autobiographies of writers that I was reading were so tortured at the time. And I almost could see myself just going down this somewhat tortured path of like in my mind. And yeah, so I think it was honestly like partly grappling with depression at that age and realizing like a way out, a way of kind of pulling yourself out of your own quicksand is to be of service to others. And that like really tangible clarity of like, this child isn't going to get a cleft open palate surgery if I don't pull this team together. This person won't get, and like step by step of just kind of being connected to a broader whole, a broader piece of the universe, like uh, that your life is interconnected with those around you. And it, it just felt like not going down the rabbit hole of kind of what can happen, what happened to me. And it happens to many writers, like as in the isolation of writing that it can be really, yeah, really hard. And so I, I think I found in like my first role with Operation Smile, just like the sense of connection to community that I had never felt before and a community of incredibly selfless people volunteering their time, taking off their vacations from work in order to provide, you know, children that they, you know, would never see again, transformational surgery. There was just so many incredible donors, so many, I mean, like the whole community that made it happen. And I just felt like I found another part of myself and another energy for what is possible in life and how tangibly we can think about helping each other, like philosophical in terms of in service to others. But I feel it's so interesting. The, the things that I've done over the course of my life have been so tangible. It's like this child needs this surgery and how can we ensure that we provide it and provide training to the community of doctors to all be better at that. Or, you know, after a natural disaster, when like medical care is needed to, because there's so many crush injuries, you need to bring orthopedic surgeons or right now it's like, medicines to people who otherwise would go blind and be disabled or the clarity of surgery. So I just, I actually feel incredibly lucky to be able to think I've not only enjoyed the joy of service and community, but having this like pick one problem and just work away at it. Because I know that, I mean, many people that I come into encounter with, like get really paralyzed by the size of problems in the world, by the size of things that need to change. And, and it's crushing when you can't carve out like what piece is mine, what am I here to do and what is in front of me that I can make a difference on. And as you, you know, continue to work in your sphere of influence, it increases rather than just kind of losing energy to where you actually aren't even making a difference. 
Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's very poignant. That struggle you mentioned that creative minds can have at times. I want to come back to that actually for a moment. Uh, but before we do that, I'm reminded of this little conversation that happened once between Abraham Lincoln and this senator when they were in a, in a carriage going somewhere and Lincoln made the claim to the other gentleman that all human motivation ultimately comes from a certain selfish purpose to pursue your own happiness. And, and then at one point in their journey, uh, Lincoln noticed, uh, I think it was like um, a little, little piglet, right, who was getting caught in a swampy land and, you know, his mother was looking woefully at like losing her little child to the marshy land and the child was sinking, sinking, sinking the piglet and Lincoln looked and, and said, stop, stop this carriage. And then he goes out and he saves the piglet and brings it back to, you know, its mother. Then he you know, comes back to the carriage and and then the senator looks at him and says, you know, Mr. Lincoln, you just proved me wrong, isn't it? Because look at it, you know, your motivation came from being selfless, not selfish. And, and Lincoln said, no, no, it came from being selfish because like I was going to be so unhappy if I allowed ourselves to keep driving forth when, when this was happening around us. I did it for my happiness. <laughs> you know, I see you saying that. I see you talking about how you and, you know, this community of, you know, wonderful volunteers who are doing this beautiful work in helping cure the, you know, the cleft lip and all of that. I mean, you were, you're ultimately bringing a lot of joy back to yourself and, you know, if, any or all of us can really experience that and live that and see that. My God, what a more beautiful world we can create, knowing that there doesn't have to be a tension or a conflict between doing the right thing from a moral, ethical, social standpoint and, and also feeding one's own hungers. And I think it's being willing to act on those impulses. Sometimes I see the action that people are taking is more cleaning or just tweeting about terrible things happening in the world rather than like, what, what can you tangibly do to make a difference? And, but yeah, I think it, I mean, definitely it's improved my happiness a lot to be in service of others. And I think that's just some of the happiest people I know have figured out what's the role of service to others in their life. But also there's something deep. I mean, I definitely remember as when I was young, just if I saw like anybody abusing a dog or a child that felt like there was this roaring goddess <laughs> like i was so i would just scream or i would like some part of me would come out of just to defend that i was like sometimes it wasn't even safe for me to be that bold and so you don't know like where those things come from to like protect the vulnerable or step in to do something about injustice and there probably are people who sense that more sensitively than others and others who there, it's more of a just watched Oppenheimer this week. <laughs> Have you seen that film yet? Yeah, yeah, I did too. You know, when he was young and like this, uh, his the, the intellect of like connecting a story about the universe and how to see things. And the there's one the one of his teachers like it's not just about understanding; it's about hearing the music. So it's like, and I thought that's such a beautiful way to put it. Like he's hearing the music of physics in that case. What music are you hearing? What is your particular type of music? Let's come back to the uh, creative arts for a moment, the writing, writing crafts. And, um, you know, for the writers amongst us, right, amongst the listeners and our audience, I want to connect the dots a little bit between what you were saying there and then what you just said more recently, because I think there is a lesson there and I want to test it with you. It's um, part of an evolving thesis I have, what maybe something that we could do to help advance the arts. And I'm just curious to see, you know, how you react to it. And I could be way off or 
partially right or, you know, all right. I don't know. So that is with you. And um, what I noticed um, several years ago is how there were these shifts happening in the art world. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of sort of focus on just um, a certain form of self-expression, you know, as though that was like the highest, um, you know, pursuit of an artist was just like expressing whatever feelings and thoughts, you know, were deeply felt in you. And then also what I noticed uh, several years ago when my daughter was in middle school is that the books that were being prescribed, you know, had several of them had a very dystopian like sort of quality, you know, as to painful state of the world and it only gets from bad to worse and there's just like a lot of evil among the power, you know, full people in the world and and that's it. You know, it's a very sorry state of affairs. And I was like, whoa, wait, wait a second. Isn't there a redemptive kind of like end to this? Isn't there a questing that, you know, the hero makes towards something? Isn't there some kind of like heroic end to this or something like that? And for you know, some of these novels, there wasn't that, there wasn't that. And I could predict to you that time, I could predict to you the coming mental health crisis amongst teens, you know, that that we are seeing today. Because I was like, if you're going to just uh, bombard your mind just with dystopia, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be Pollyannic, like, you know, unhinged form of like utopian thinking when the world around you consists of a lot of pain and suffering. I mean, I think it does make sense to be very grounded in the harsh realities. And and then what you did in the last part of your conversation is you provided us the connective tissue between redemptive possibilities and the pain of like not seeing things go well in the world, which is do something about it. You know, don't just, you know, see it around you. Don't just have a sensitive heart, but do something about it. And uh, so my hypothesis is that somebody who's an aspiring writer, who wants to be a writer, who's seeing how tortured some of the souls were, you know, writers, Perhaps the conclusion doesn't need to be necessarily that, you know, writing as a career, as a path is doomed, you know, to be torturous, but to ask yourself, who are the exemplars within the writing profession who have an intention behind their writing that is not merely to express the pain they're feeling, et cetera, but to be of service to the world in some positive way, to find a way to lift human consciousness, to shape and, you know, help people direct their energies towards some positive action and to use the power of the pen, you know, to, you know, you know, to kind of help people. I mean, at some level, I see Shakespeare as an example of that and Tennyson and some of the poets from, from those ages. And I, anyway, I, I don't know what you think of that, but. Yeah. I love it. I think definitely, you know, we go in cycles and chapters of different cultures, chapters of humanity, chapters of the world. It's, and I definitely think that, I don't know if it's the novels being uh, read in school as much as like the news that we turn on and, reading about school shootings or the impact of climate change or like it's can feel pretty dystopian. And I think we have to curate our own inputs because there, we need a lot of uh, hope in order to lead us to action. And that sense of like hopelessness is what leads people to kind of inaction and collapsing inside of yourself. And if we are here to help, co-create the world with each other than having stories. I mean, this is so known by politicians, like stories of hope sell more than stories of doom and stories of, I mean, for me, I feel like I'm surrounded by so many stories of hope. I, I actually probably, cause I work with so many change makers and people who are, you know, so practically doing such incredible things in the world. And that I think, wow, there's immense possibility for what the next chapter can be. Or sometimes it's just scaling back and looking at things from a much longer time horizon of what is possible. And, you know, we've, we live it in a time where 
there's so much less poverty in the world than there ever was. There's so much more access to opportunity and education and information. And, and there's a downside of too much information, but actually the liberating capacity of that is so amazing as well that I, I think it's just, you have to find your own path. And for me, it was going to be a longer route. And which is why maybe even me having a co-author for my book was really helpful because then it was a collaborative endeavor and having a, writing a book that ended up being about how can I tell the stories of people suffering from these diseases so that more people can take action. That was a different type of book than I would have written 20, 30 years ago. But for some people, like writing is the way that they heal themselves. Like that's the only way that they can think clearly is if they're writing and need to write it out to express themselves. But I mean, you touch on something that I that I'm extremely concerned about, especially as a mom of a teenage daughter, which is the mental health crisis going on in our world. And I I think part of it is how much weight they feel from, you know, seeing how many problems are on the world that they're the generation that has to solve them. It's just, a, it's a different time. I love if you think about how can you, how can you elevate whatever artistic endeavor that you're in to help create stories of hope and possibility and transformation? You know, I, I got that little spark from, a, you know, a thought that I uh, read from Gandhi. And, and he said that, you know, to me, the only thing that qualifies as art is something that ultimately helps to advance human consciousness closer towards its divine identity, you know? So it's just an interesting idea, right? It's pretty purist view though. I mean, it's also art as a expression of the many, many facets of humanity and of all of the different ways that human beings can be in the world and can, if it's to share like darkness, that is part of being human also. Well, so this is an interesting thought, right? So then I'm just going to get tested with you, like my build on what you just said, which is my thesis is that if you focus on darkness and then just stop there, you know, then that's one kind of outcome that you'll get. And then if you focus on darkness and then uh, move it from that shake up, wake up, opening of eyes and sensitizing you know yourself and the community to to that uh, and then move it from there into now what are we going to do about it now what are we going to do about it you know like what i've just shared is kind of what i've learned from cognitive behavior therapy and you know there's, there's dr david burns is a preeminent you know people have these automatic negative thoughts like you know nobody loves me or like i'm terrible at work or like i'm not a good dancer or whatever it might be and and like one of the breakthroughs that you know cognitive therapy helps people achieve is this thing that you you don't like shy away from honoring the uncomfortable truth and some of those like maybe you know dark aspects of what you're going through, but then you always like end with that flourish. But like now, what am I going to do about it? And that's what from the agent. Which is asking, is that even true that I'm a terrible dancer or that I'm not lovable? Like yes, yes. So in some cases, you challenge that because maybe your view of darkness is a very distorted view of the world. To the extent it's a true view of some aspect of the world, then anyway. But and that's what you've done. You had this sensitive heart. You had it for all the, yeah, injustices and pain you saw in the world, and you just like directed your whole life towards it. What moved you from you know those early forays into yeah social service and you know humanitarian work to ultimately coming to to the end fund? You know, it was not some sketched out path. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it's as many things in life happens. It's just you do the next best thing, do the next thing that is on offer, and. And I was very proactive, certainly, in looking for different opportunities. 
but also, you know, I would have never guessed that the end fund would have been created at the time. In that case, it was a recruiter who reached out to me and I already had a role at the end fund. And I was thinking I wasn't looking for another job, but actually this was so compelling from the size of the problem that we would have a chance to tackle. Part of my view of the world is a bit utilitarian in terms of how can you do the greatest good for the greatest number? And, you know, that pragmatic utilitarian, and I'm also optimistic, but I'm also just, okay, if there's, if there are solutions and interventions and that can help people at scale, then that should, that, that has to be done. Like someone should do it. And I remember going to my first interview thinking, well, I don't think I'm very qualified for this job because I didn't study neglected tropical diseases and I haven't been a CEO before. And, but I was so obsessed with learning about these diseases and reading everything about them. And I was so fascinated at the scale of the problem and how few people knew about them that I went with a whole list of notes of things that I thought whoever got the job might want to take forward. <laughs> that I was just like this funding source and this conference and this, like, and they were, they sort of laughed. They were like, well, first of all, you were one of the only people who knew how to pronounce the diseases. <laughs> and I think that that sense of probably my innate thing of like, oh, that is a problem that should be solved. And my problem solving proactive nature just started on that path. And even though I had my own self-doubt, I mean, a lot of people do like sense of imposter syndrome or am I really ready for this? And I was, you know, I was, I was 39 when I became CEO of the End Fund. Am I too young? Whatever the story that I had in my mind was. And then just to be like, well, if they want me to try it, then just try it. Then we'll build it. And it's luckily I was the CEO of an idea at the beginning <laughs> until we built it and hired more people and created an organization. So yeah, it's been a, a it's been, this is my 12th year and I've just absolutely loved this journey and met so many incredible people along the way and continue to learn and really just feel like part of a, part of a global community that is working on a common vision and roadmap to end these diseases. So it just feels like a great meta collaboration on many levels, getting away from competition within a particular sector, because there's so much competition in the NGO nonprofit world. And sometimes people that are working on the exact same thing can just clash. And it felt like this is an under-resourced area with not enough people working on it and, and a huge desire for collaboration. And and the end funds model as a philanthropic collaborative was how do we mobilize more resources, not just to, for our own view of how we're going to end neglected diseases, but how do we support whoever is best placed in whatever community to help move the whole agenda forward. So it's like all ships will rise if the sea rises. And that has been really nice to just think, because I think that that the scale of collaborating to solve global problems is is often not thought about of like who are the system entrepreneurs and what's the ecosystem of support between organizations not just siloed within organizations that needs to be developed and so that whole field of system entrepreneurship and systems leadership has just fascinated me and i think that this community of folks working on neglected tropical diseases really exemplifies systems leader thinking very cool so let me make sure i understand you correct so you have both programs that you design and execute on your own as the end fund. And at the same time, you're integrated with this ecosystem and helping support other organizations that provide channel and access and delivery or et cetera to certain parts of the world to help alleviate these um, 
neglected diseases. Is that right? Mostly don't implement programs ourselves. So I would consider like 80% of all of our funding goes to grant making to others. So it is funding governments, funding local NGOs, funding academic partners, and ensuring that there's collaboration and not overlap between those partners. And so that is a big emphasis on resource mobilization. But in order to raise funds, you also have to tell stories about this work, do advocacy. And so the more that we've grown in this space, we have a role of technical assistance. We have some incredible technical experts that support governments and partners. We do a work on monitoring and evaluation. We do commissioning reports that on the state of the sector, a lot of convening, you know, so that we're bringing people together from different countries and different parts of these disease areas. We're, yeah, communications, really trying to do more on getting the financing right. So working on health financing, both for the private sector and the public sector. So I think that it's sort of like how, what are the key levers that are needed across the whole system? And it's more resources, more convening, more thought, more research. We would end up supporting that, well as we would make grants to organizations that are actually, and it's mostly to governments, like that have within their health systems, can deliver medicines, can provide care, and they're just incredibly resource constrained. And that allows us to kind of hold a systems view without having to also be, you know, hire hundreds of thousands of community health workers to be, you know, in every village delivering, which wouldn't make sense anyway, because it should be those villages deciding themselves what's the best way of getting care out to their community. So um, what are some other aspects of like society and the world where you feel this model is missing right now? And if it could be successfully implemented, it might make a significant difference in the way resources are coordinated, best practices are shared and you know, all of that. It does sound to me like you're making a very important point. And I always kind of intrigued about how when somebody is doing really good work in a certain arena, I feel like there are two stories playing out, you know, and I want to test this with you. One is the story of what they're doing, but the other is the story of what is emulatable. You know, what is that they're doing, which is coming from that place of a universal truth that you were saying early in your life, you got very drawn to like, what are those universals? So, so I'm just thinking about like in the end fund and this kind of system, you know, entrepreneurship that you're doing in social impact, you know, what is the universal truth here that perhaps could benefit, you know, other parts of social impact work as well and, and beyond? I like to say like, uh, leave your ego and your logo behind and make collaboration a higher priority than organizational survival even. Like if your organization is not needed anymore, be okay with that rather than just empire building, which can happen in the nonprofit because sometimes it's like not philanthropy is can be delinked to um, market forces and it can be because you know so i think the other thing is just being really willing to support system catalysts who have it who can take analytical looks at how all of the different actors work together so what is that system map and because so people are so busy doing their thing in their organization sometimes they don't have time to step back and have a system map view and there was one story I heard once that was like all the organizations in San Francisco got together, you know, and if they combined their budgets, they could keep every single homeless person in the Ritz-Carlton and they're not solving homelessness. But it was once, and this has happened in a number of different cities working on homelessness, once it's like, okay, what are, what are individual organizations? They're trying to be good at everything rather than like, what are you best at? And lean in on that. And the other one that's best at something, lean in on that. And then the way that those services connect might actually be 
a, a greater have a greater impact than the way that the, the ecosystem is structured right now. So I feel like there's many. I mean, I've, I've been curious about this, you know, back to our conversation about mental health and young people, especially in the United States that I have visibility on, like what it seems very fractured. It seems very much based on what insurance do you have and what gets covered and who can make a livelihood in this work and, and long waiting lists and or you need to get services through schools and only if you can afford private services. So there's like there's so much that's burdened by the way the health system works. And there's so much that's from a sort of a, a point of care when there's, when there's a crisis rather than what is the, what's creating resilience and what's creating, what's, what's preventing mental health crisis rather than just once you get to the most acute form. I don't know what that solution would be, but I definitely feel like there needs to be some more system thinking around this issue. I'm pretty close to an organization called the Freedom Fund that works on ending modern day slavery. And it's been really wonderful to see the impact that they've had. Like when they first were started, there was another, there, I mean, sometimes they call human trafficking and modern day slavery, like a, a data free zone because it's essentially crime. And so it's very hard to get accurate statistics about how many people are currently being trafficked or are currently living in conditions of slavery. And so that there was two main bodies, the International Labor Organization and then an organization called Walk Free that were doing their own analysis of this and then putting out numbers of the global burden of slavery is X. And they were widely different. And that wasn't helping with advocacy because people just got confused. And so once they helped create a platform for those organizations to collaborate, it's like, okay, let's at least work on methodology together. Let's work on common messaging. Let's, And so there was like much more collaboration at a global level, which helped unlock additional funding, got more attention for that issue. And then the other thing at a micro level, they, were, they would focus on hotspots of slavery, like the, the Nepal-India border, for example. The story about the Nepal-India to border was that there was small organizations working on the issue on both sides of the border, but they weren't talking to each other. So people were having their, you know, children trafficked from Nepal into India, and there were services there, but they didn't have anything on the prevention side. They weren't sharing information between organizations. So they might have one place where they're like, okay, the, the number of bonded laborers has gone down here, but it's actually gone up in the community next door. So is that really a overall reduction of burden? And just to, just to fund a whole ecosystem of organizations and to fund the collaborative glue to bring them together and share um, best practices was um, really instrumental in helping to reduce that burden and to increase everything from resilience programming to litigation to uh, policy change. So it's I think there's a lot of a lot of issue areas like that from education to climate. I mean, the climate I've seen the climate funders network that's brought together funders who were previously everybody funding their own projects of how they thought things should be moving forward to like. Are we actually using the collective resources to best and highest use? And how do we align funding or, you know, just really share information, share due diligence so that not everybody's doing due diligence on the same organizations 10 times over? So there's so many great ways to impact that. I'm so glad that um, this has come up in our conversation because I, I see this as a very thought-provoking, I think, observation from you that will, I hope, be of, you know, enduring value to so many you know, amongst the listeners who are very inspired and invested in their own causes, but sometimes, you know, you don't see the forest from the trees. And uh, and, and that's what you're really highlighting is that there's there's a whole other level 
that somebody needs to take stewardship and ownership over. I can easily imagine somebody like a Paul Hawken, for example, from the environmental movement would really celebrate, right, the message you're delivering because he's so zoomed out and he has such a capacious capacity, you know, to kind of look across the whole thing and appreciate and empathize with the whole, you know, diverse sort of positions and points of view and all of that as to what we need to do to help advance the environmental movement. How is the United Nations in your eyes doing on this front to act as a body through which some of this kind of more, you know, collective um, coordination and systems thinking can be brought to bear? I am probably not the best one to ask. I mean, I, I worry about the, I think that the aspiration of the United Nations is so important. And right now it's the one entity we have for global coordination that's agreed on. So we, there's such an urgency to make it work, yet it is kind of stuck in like a post-World War II, you know, the, who has power on the Security Council and, you know, it's a really, really tough, you know, and it's one country, one vote. It's so, it just feels like every time really trying to get big things done at the United Nations, it's so political and so bogged down and so complex. And also there's been so many scandals with like, Keepers actually being forces of evil because of you know rape and spread of cholera and lot. So it's such a big institution. It's almost like the elephant where you touch it one place and you don't you're blind and you don't know what it is. I can say that my most interaction with the UN right now is the World Health Organization, and I am vastly hopeful about what WHO can accomplish and undergo a lot of criticism all the time, but they are, you know, one former head of the WHO told me people expect so much from WHO, yet they have the budget of like a mid-sized hospital in the UK. And for, but governments look to them, not necessarily the US, but most governments, especially in the developed country, are looking to them for technical guidance or recommendations about how to run healthcare systems. They can't have a disease expert in every single area. And so they really rely on WHO. And in the case of neglected tropical diseases, WHO helps to gather applications from countries on what drugs they need. And they facilitate a multi-billion dollar drug donation program every year to get medicines to places that are needed, which is incredible. They've uh, been hugely proactive in convening and thought leadership around how to move the NT agenda forward. They helped with get just thousands of pieces partners input to create what's now the NTD global roadmap to 2030. So I just think from the, yeah, from that technical convening authority perspective there, you know, it's the only time that all ministers of health from around the world get together is the WHO health assembly to talk about our, and talk about, you know, health is not confined to borders as we know very well now. <laughs> so I really feel like I have a lot of hope in WHO and then UNICEF I've seen have tremendous impact. I mean, they certainly also have helped work on, on uh, with us, how do we integrate um, deworming more into um, child health programs? How do you advocate for deworming being a part of a school health package so that kids, you know, it's not just the better curriculum that they need, but they need to be healthy when they're at school. So I just see so many intelligent, thoughtful, well-educated, like committed people working inside the UN system, yet Every, as any big system is, there's there's real challenges and they can, can just be incredibly political. I feel like certainly UN reform overall would probably be really helpful, yet it's uh, difficult to achieve. What is your view on the UN? Have you collaborated much with the UN? 
it's so hard for me to say the UN because to me it's like if you don't break it down into like this piece that you understand or this piece that you collaborate with, it's making an overall judgment is is hard. Yeah, it is a multi-headed beast, isn't it? And um, like you said, you know, on the one hand, we have to feel super thankful that this experiment that began after the Second World War actually has sustained itself and for the most part has provided a certain connective tissue, you know, on world issues that has also kept a little bit of a watch and a little bit of care on, you know, how we like really deal with each other as humanities across borders and all of that. And and yet, um, you know, I, I do have my like my struggles with, you know, bureaucracy and uh, politics and the need to maintain a certain like purity of intent and a resolute executional focus, which I think as soon as organizations become that large and you know, multidimensional and with multiple stakeholders and all of that and decision making by committee and votes and all of that, you know, it's just very, very hard to do some, of you know, life's best work. And so I guess, you know, part of me is like just praying for it, you know, praying. Um, but I also realize that behind that, like, like you said, lies a number of, you know, very deeply entrenched power structures. And, and so really it's a reflection of the nations and the sponsors and the leaders behind them. And that's where the real change has to really be manifested. I mean, how much can someone do just within the United Nations to make change happen if the leaders who are sponsoring and the nations who are behind it right, don't evolve themselves too? And I don't know if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. I always wonder if we didn't have the UN, who would fill that purpose? And that's my concern is like, I actually think we need a UN to have some convening power and place to have conversations that the world agrees is that forum to do it. And it would be hard to rebuild that now at a time where everyone you know, so many countries are becoming more and more insular and isolationist. Who would decide that kind of structure now? Like the fact that it was even created as a miracle to hold like, a, especially collaboration on things like climate, uh, the environment more broadly, global, you know, just it's amazing how many just different accords on protection of the oceans, like the, the UN is so pivotal too. But in many cases, same with the World Health Organization, WHO is one actor of a whole ecosystem of governments and NGOs and academics and like, how do we all march together toward, you know, progress, recognizing, yeah, the UN can play a critical, but one part of the role. Yeah. Yeah. My one regret and what is otherwise like you've just also so thoughtfully said, you know, a, a deep appreciation for how in an imperfect world, you still have an institution like that, you know, around. My one regret is that we have in the present moment in human consciousness, a mindset in institutions that they have to showcase themselves as though they are perfect, as though whatever position they're taking, you know, absolutely is the morally right one and is the right one. And they cannot present a little bit more of a state of humility and a state of like, let's have a unit within us that is constantly in a self-reflective mode about how do we need to transform ourselves what are our limitations and weaknesses in the context of where humanity is gone versus where we are today and being very open about some of its like struggles you know in that regard and and taking steps towards moving themselves you know from from here to a better you know institutional form tomorrow that self-renewing self-transforming aspect that we know is so critical for every family and human being you know if we could create those structures as well as a very storied part of what an institution is. There is a department for that, like self-transformation. Perfectly fine to say that, like we are a work in progress and we are not perfect. Because, because what I'm seeing is, I don't, I don't know if you would, would agree with this or not. I'm seeing like almost like humanity is moving at a faster pace than institutions are moving, and institutions are holding holding humanity back, you know, in some regards. 
Well, you definitely see that right now about AI. Many things related to the internet, institutions are so far behind just where progress is going. And like the idea of keeping up from an ethical perspective, from values, from regulatory perspective is hard to fathom. I don't know. I mean, I almost see when you're explaining that, I almost feel like you're suggesting literally a department of self-transformation. Like say we're at Columbia University and this group of people over there are going to think about our mistakes and how we can be transparent about it. And maybe that would be one way of institutionalizing it. But I also think it's just a framework of, of leaders inside the organization. Like that has to be so owned by everyone. And what you, if you can demonstrate that your single classroom, like I don't have it perfect. This is our curriculum for the semester. This is what we're planning for, but I don't have it perfect. Turns out we should turn a different way or you guys don't like this, or this isn't going to be that useful. We can, we can turn this work. This, this is what I got. I built this based on the input from last year. You know, like it just constantly this. And I do feel like the, there's a lot of um, incentives to not share failure. So how do we create incentives to share it? so that we can learn. And sometimes that is happening more and more, I see, but in pretty small settings. It's hard when it comes to the public, when you're when it could affect your brand, it could affect your fundraising capacity, it could affect your, you know, shareholder value, whatever. Like people get very nervous about sharing too many failures. But I think actually when people authentically share what they're not good at, even as an individual, that's when you perk up because you're like, oh, you are also aren't perfect. Great. We're all at humanity working you know, trying to make the world better from a very imperfect place that we are ourselves. And and would we love this frame at the end fund, everyone takes like a strength finder. So, you know, Gallup started this years ago and you're kind of, here's your top strengths and you get them ranked, you know, one through 32. And the point is everybody has strengths and how do you actually lean into what your strengths are and not put people on in roles where they really are going to fail at that or even within that role, if they did a certain way, then they would thrive. And I, I definitely feel like we've had many, you know, oftentimes at team retreats, discussions about here's what the strength map profile looks like for your department, for this level of the organization, for and, and what's missing and how do we lean into it more? So it's a way that feels safer than saying, what are your failures? <laughs> so I don't know. I definitely, I mean, I, I like the idea of the founding head of programs for the end fund used to always call it a commitment to reflect reflective practice. And that would be like taking time to have an after action report that was facing the brutal facts. Like, how did this really go? How could this have gone better? Let's just not celebrate it now that we're at the end. But do you have these cycles for review and continuous improvement when it's, you know, when we're in an environment where it's easy just to kind of like rush ahead and get on to the next thing, and then you end up repeating the same mistakes you had before. So I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely think we need to embrace it as institutions and as individuals more, just modeling that behavior. And we're soon going to be having to wrap up. Uh, I you know, want to be so grateful for the generosity of your spirit and time with us today. Before we you know, have to, though, I'd be really keen, uh, both from my own joy and uh, experiencing more of your life journey and, and for our listeners, if you could share you know, like a story of uh, something that has brought you such a sense of fulfillment for all the sacrifice and the commitment and energy that you have been putting in, you know, year upon year into helping and serve the world. What is like a story that um, your heart goes back to it from time to time and it gives you a great sense of reaffirmation and a rejuvenation of spirit, not knowing that you, you know, you were, you were part of that story. 
oh my goodness, there's so many. This was many years ago. There was a program set up that was sort of birthed out of Operation Smile. And one of our funders who became a dear friend, she was particularly felt passionate about the kids that were not able to receive surgery that would come to screenings because their cases were just too complex. And it required not only just a simple cleft and palate surgery, but maybe neurosurgery, more complex anesthesia, more complex aftercare. And in particular, there was a uh, there's a high rate in the Philippines of a type of hydrocele, of encephalocele of the brain, and it'd be herniated brain tissue. And it would start, like the brain tissue would start coming out and up between your eyes and nose and kind of destroy the nose, widen the eyes. And you could have a tumor hanging off that would sometimes cover your eyes so that you couldn't see. And it might be like pound, three pounds, five pounds until it could get very large. And it was often children that had this. And so the stigma, sense of self, the not being allowed to go to school. And so we set up a program at the time. And it was just sort of like my volunteer work on the side. So it wasn't even like a core part of my main job. It was just to help set up this nonprofit that would bring these kids to Hawaii from the Philippines, receive surgery at Tripler Army Hospital. And then they would go stay on the big island. And it was a collaboration with the Nature Conservancy where she was also trying to um, protect indigenous native lands. And Hawaii's a place with a lot of sort of invasive species and like, how do you protect the pure koa forest? And so it was, it was like a protecting land and then also highlighting all of, not only the surgery and neurosurgery and anesthesia that's needed, but all of the aftercare that you might have fixed, you know, kind of physically this child, but what else could you do emotionally? And so there was like, you know, art therapists, dolph people swim with the dolphins, animal therapy. I mean, all sorts of the most beautiful, nature-based, compassionate therapy while they were there getting all of their follow-up care. So it was like three months. So it was an incredibly intensive program that you could only do like a handful of kids per year because of how intensive it was. And that project lasted like 10 years. So there was, you know, say like between 30 and 50 kids total, something like that, that were um, taken care of. And I was very involved in the setup of it. So the first year I actually went to the Philippines to the Operations Mile Mission, got the medical charts for the kids with more complicated care, took them back to Tripler. Anyway, and they came and got surgery. And then, and one of the little girls was, maybe she was eight at the time, Marianne. And so this is so long ago, like almost 20 years ago. And recently she found me on Facebook. And <laughs> it was the most unreal thing because I don't even really check Facebook. I don't really, I'm not active on Facebook. But she found and was sending me these notes that were like, just wanting you to know, I remember you from that time. My life has changed. I'm married now. I wanted to show you a picture of my, my firstborn baby. And if I hadn't gotten that surgery when I was a kid, I would have never had this life. And it was like, she finished her education. She was like beaming with happiness. And it was, I think that was just touching because I think, oh, it, sometimes it's very overwhelming, like the, especially at the end fund when the numbers are so large. When we're like over a hundred million people we could treat and it can just seem abstract. But then when it's back to like, oh, Marianne, like she had a very different life because of the effort that I took and that others took to make this program happen. And we got a lot of criticism for that program because it was like, oh, it's over, you know, it was too expensive, it was impractical, it wasn't replicable, all these things that are like, well, 
it's not impractical for that one person. It's not, you know, that's, this is the passion that this group of people had and was able to live that out. And it doesn't matter that that organization didn't live on in history forever. It like was here to serve a beautiful cause and, and it changed and transformed not only her life, but the life of everybody who was able to be a part of that story. I mean, I, that's one of I would so many stories. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. It was very, very heartwarming to hear. And it's interesting because like now in the work you do with, in the end fund, I mean, how many people are positively impacted by, you know, all of the organizations that you work with and serve? You know, you must have, I guess, some numbers around sort of on an annual basis or collectively over the last 10 years, um, the number of people who've gotten the right inoculations and things. And yeah. I have to look at the most recent data because it starts like, but we've we've delivered over one billion NTD treatments to almost three hundred million people, but it's scaled over the years. So now it's over a hundred million people per year in almost thirty countries. And I just saw we've we've been able to provide over eighty thousand surgeries as well. And the surgeries are to stop blindness. Like one of the types of surgeries we do, which is like a seventy five dollar surgery, but when you have blinding trachoma, your eyelashes get infected, they start turning inwards. And so it feels like every time you blink your eye, like sandpaper is scratching across your eye, extremely painful. And it will lead, lead to irreversible blindness. But there's a surgery that you can do that just kind of flips the eyelashes back, take medicine to stop the recurrence of that infection. And not only does it stop the pain, but it stops the progression to blindness. So tens of thousands of people that are no longer at risk of being blind. That's just this year, we're gonna be providing more than 20,000 of those surgeries through our partners and supporting them. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Last question for you, what's the source of your energy? I mean, for you to be exuding so much joy with the heaviness of heart that one must inevitably feel, being embroiled and engaged with some of these struggles that still persistent humanity, we were just talking about that, you know, what that can do to a writer, what can that can do to an artist. And here you are, you're really actively invested in these issues. You're probably from time to time reading and studying and encountering, you know, these communities where, I mean, just the way you describe the condition, you know, for that one individual for whom, you know, there was that, yeah, just uh, outgrowth, right? It's so you know, challenging emotionally for one to face and take that. And so where do you nourish yourself most? probably the same that way you do that nourishment inside yourself creating space for rest and contemplation and that home within your own heart that is just deeply restful and i so definitely having a yoga and meditation practice for me is important spending time with friends you know hiking being in nature and and I get energy from this work. It's not like I need energy from somewhere else to do the work. I get energy from this work because I love the people that I work with. The team at the End Fund is so smart and so inspiring. And I learn something from them every day. And I, you know, I, I just feel the clarity of need and the clarity of what resources are needed. It's just like it needs to be done. And when there's an opportunity to communicate with potential funders or to lay out a plan to scale work, I just get a lot of energy from seeing it. And, and now there's been dozens of countries who have reached disease elimination goals. So never, you know, there's been almost 50 years of efforts to eliminate river blindness in Africa. And just this year, 
was the first year that Niger and Senegal were able to eliminate. You know, Togo eliminated lymphatic filariasis. We're on the brink of eradicating guinea worm. There's just so in terms of seeing like, wow, these are diseases that have been around for thousands of years that are referenced in the Bible. Like they on our watch in this generation, you know, with our support, like we're lucky to be the ones that are here now to see that this turn in history from diseases that in the US, for example, we used to have trachoma and hookworm in the American South, and those diseases don't cause as much of a burden now. And everybody deserves to live a life free of preventable diseases. And this is just about giving the opportunity to everyone rather than just the privileged few. So part of the energy that comes when you love what you do. So beautiful. You started a little bit with some of the inner inner kind of practices and then you moved into, you know, walks in nature and then you come back to your actual work itself as a source of energy. So beautiful, so inspiring. You talked about the guinea worm and that actually is funny that you say that because as you were just talking, you know, I was being reminded of Jimmy Carter, you know, whatever I know about our former president and how all through his life, you know, until it seemed like his dying breath, he's just so deeply invested in wanting to, you know, be of service, you know, to to humanity and, and uh, manifest goodness. And one of those has been around the elimination of the guinea worm, you know, his Carter Center. And so, uh, so you were reminding me of his energy and they- Yeah, but no, the Carter Center is a major partner of ours and uh, inspiration to me. And yeah, I have a book signed on my bookshelf by Jimmy Carter, thanking me for the work in this space. And it's very meaningful to me. He certainly set the pathway of saying just because the people are neglected and the diseases are neglected doesn't mean that people at the highest levels on the world stage shouldn't be talking about it and shouldn't be doing something about it. And I feel like he's, he's like a clarion call to action for all of us that work in this space. Yeah. I want you to have the last word. And so as we bring this to closure, I do think if there is one thing that you as a message want to offer, you know, all our listeners as they go back inspired, you know, by this conversation into their own lives and make the make make the choices in the, you know, days and months ahead on how to like fully manifest their purpose in, in advancing whatever, you know, it is that there is their calling. You know, as, as you think about that, let me just kind of like close out from my side with an offering for you. And it's a small little story. One of the surgeons who was in, in my class, he shared the story. He was doing some work with doctors beyond borders, you know, in Africa. And it had to do with cleft surgery. And there was this line of individuals who had come, you know, from here and from there. And he said, there's one point, there was this one individual that he was, you know, doing the surgery for an adult. And he had apparently, you know, walked long distance, you know, to come there and to, to, to get this moment, you know. And, and he said, and I think like this worker who was working with me, a local, probably saw that I was kind of like a little bit just sort of like disengaged or disgruntled or something, you know, in that moment after that surgery. And so, so he comes up to me and he says, he says, Dr. So-and-so, to the whole world, you know, this person that you just did the surgery for, you know, this might be just one human being. But I want to let you know that to this one human being, you are the whole world, you know, what you've just done. And uh, Ellen, I mean, you and your team and the end fund and all of these wonderful people you collaborate with and all that you have served and again, worked with in past years and these other very noble organizations. I mean, like my heavens, like each of these people that you have, you know, transformed like that individual who, uh, you know, connected with you on Facebook. I mean, to them, you are the whole world. And, you know, today you are that to us as well. I'm so grateful for all you do. Well, thank you for what you have done by creating this platform. And I just love this focus that you have on how do we support 
true human flourishing and the connection between inner change and outer change. And I mean, I think that so often these conversations are divided about what are we doing on our inner life and for our spiritual well-being and what are the bigger questions about why we're all here to our work life. And if anything, I think you are shining a light on the universal truth that they're one. We are one. Like life is all one and there's no difference. And what you bring to your heart for one part of your life ends up spreading to the rest of your life. And I think that we need so much more integration of these conversations. So thank you for creating the platform for that. Thank you so much. So grateful. Thank you. Thank you.